This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Flat Out Farno, you're Laddie H, host of Flat Out Pride on your Free FM dial. If you're a Waikato local with an idea for your own show, Free FM would love to hear from you. Check out our website, freefm.org.nz, or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys. Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no Adapted from his book, Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair wrote 12 books based on life lived to the full. A career extending from the National Film Unit to part-time as Christchurch Heritage tram driver to photojournalist with the press. Two hours of pushing broom, fives and eight by twelve, four bit broom. I'm a man of means, by no means, king of the road. Brimming with vim and vigor, ready to encounter Japan's culture and history at ground level, my partner Haliko and I look out to sea from the extremity of Japan, this northern cape of the northern island of Hokkaido. There's a sense of forlorn about the misty mountains, the desolate shore, the monuments to honour the innocent, a sculpture dedicated to 269 victims of an attack on the Korean Airlines flight that inexplicably wanders off course over Soviet territory from its skyway from New York to Seoul in 1983. We hear toll a world peace bell on Cape Soya Misaki, Witness to all that transpires in Suguru Strait, separating Japan and Russia. Historically, the forests, fish and settlers on that horizon, the island of Sakhalin, were of Ainu and Japanese jurisdiction, not the Russians. We've seen, registered in rock, tribute to peacemakers who stand by their promise never to launch war when talking might manage. Tension still simmers over claims that continue to be a topic of debate, but there's hope on the horizon. In Hokkaido's deep-sea fishing port Wakanai, we realise the rich resources of cod and salmon fuels continuing debate on who should have what. After World War II ended, it was an uneasy settlement reached by negotiation. The Russians regularly seized Japanese fishing craft for coming close. After placing a peace bell at the Cape, the Japanese, who founded the movement for world peace bells, Mr. Yoshida, notices a warming of relations. His way opens to visit Russia. Diplomacy and friendliness prevails over the fishing issues. Haliko and I have not gone far with our first day's focus on Hokkaido hospitality. At this rate, I'll eat so much I'll not survive the cycle journey. Our hostess is Yuko, who insists I submit to her legendary breakfast, lavishly praised in their visitor's book. There's an array of small bowls at the ready, the obligatory rice and miso soup. Miso? A fermented bean paste. It accompanies tamagoyaki. It's much like an egg omelette. Let's not forget the pickles of daikon, large white radish. Yoko treats me to my first taste of a famous delicacy, 
deadly unless prepared and cooked expertly. Chopsticks hovering, I hesitate. Yoko laughs at my nervousness to trust her with my life. Fugu. To my astonishment, it's a sweet Japanese delicacy. The risk is, if a poisonous part of a pufferfish or blowfish begins to numb the mouth, it may go on to paralyze the diner, who, conscious to the end, succumbs to its incredibly powerful toxin for which no antidote exists. These unfamiliar foods are a rare treat. Yuko grills flakes of hoke, another Hokkaido fish. It goes down well with grated Japanese radish and soy sauce. Oishi, I say, very yummy. Yuko smiles approval. She loves living in Hokkaido, for if she had come to settle as a married woman in any other part of rural Japan, she might stay an outsider forever. For many Japanese, it would be too remote, too far from Tokyo. I'd still be Oyumi-san, she says, meaning bride or stranger, even after 20 years. That's not the case in Hokkaido. Yoko's glad to get guests she can converse with. The Russians are a blessing as tourists. After all, their land lies on the horizon, and Wakanai has Russian as well as Japanese street signs. It's no help to Yoko seeking to communicate with a Russian guest, whereas, with Haluko's help, she can with me. I ask Yoko if she's had New Zealanders stay in their guest house before. No, never, is her reply. Hokkaido is the last refuge of the indigenous Ainu people, avoiding Japanese domination till the 19th century. The northern city's name of Wakanai comes from an Ainu expression, meaning creek of cold water. Am I imagining that its name sounds like Maori to me? Another thought, I compare this meaning with the Waimakariri rivers, which translates to cold rushing water. Fishing village to begin with. It's now a small city, but in Lonely Planet Travel Guide, not recommended to tourists, dismissing Wakanai as no compelling place to stay unless travel arrangements strand you there overnight. Why would they say so? True, its population of about 43,000 is declining. We'll cycle tomorrow around this, Japan's most northern city, to see what makes it tick. Something is strange about the streets. I keep on hearing familiar melodies, like Colonel Boogie March. Old-time western tunes blaring from loudspeakers on power poles, the bane of Japan's urban life. According to Haruko, they'll keep playing it in my honor so long as they know a westerner is out and about town. Strangely, I note I'm peddling in time to the tune in a strange town so far from home. Julie Andrews
Wakanai's inner city lays bare. There's places where a large fire has rampaged through about 25 wooden houses. We try talking to locals about it. They're reluctant. Their eyes fill with tears, so we ask no more questions. We see a small, little-used railway station, which is actually the northern terminus of Japan's railway system. There's a cable car, too, ancient-looking, yet it takes us to the top of a short, steep climb to Kuen Park. Up there, there's a memorial to two famous sledging dogs, Taro and Yiro. Hokkaido served as a training ground for Japan's Antarctic exploration. Its scientists successfully land in 1958, but an early winter forces them to evacuate by helicopter lest their ship be trapped in ice. That's, in 1958, the International Year for Geophysics Research for Study of the Earth's Crust. The rescue leaves huskies, all 15 of them, behind. The humans, reluctant to kill their dogs, are gone for a year, their dogs left to fend for themselves. It's not till the next year, 1959, that a new team of scientists, thinking the huskies to be long gone, returns to Antarctica. Taro and Yero, the two known to survive the abandoned camp, eagerly greet their human masters and resume the relationship of enduring loyalty even to they who abandon them. Their resilience stands as a symbol of trust and determination when all hope seems lost. We wonder how, in so stark an environment, they stay healthy. Speculation credits their instinct to survive for adapting the dog's diet to feeding on birds, seals, or to plankton providing protein the dogs could lick through cracks in the marine ice. Honouring the two huskies in their likeness is this memorial in the children's playground, preserving the legend of how the huskies help human endeavour. Yoko's 53-year-old husband warms to the challenge of communicating with me. He treats us to a nightcap, banshaku, from a large sake bottle. To this he adds the taste of treats of dried squid, heated over gas, and his own favourite, shiokara, squid guts on rice. It reminds of the adventurous taste challenges of Hokitika's Wild Foods Festival back home. Yoko's husband learns Russian and acquires new skill at carpentry class. Departing for his studies next morning, he proudly pins to his clean denim jacket our New Zealand flag. It's now late summer. We're reluctant to leave, but must. By my string and ruler calculations back in Christchurch, we still have three and a half thousand kilometres separating us from the south of Japan. By the time we arrive there... The first snow of winter will be already falling here in Hokkaido. Yoko gives us both a huge hug. As the excitement of departure dies down, we take in our surroundings. Cycling along a quiet road, we have the Sea of Japan and the offshore island of Mount Rishiri for company, watching our progress till its 1,719-metre peak 
finally slips behind late in the afternoon. I ask Harlequin if the dairy cows we pass on farms of lush grass actually moo in Japanese. Even with warning of an approaching typhoon, there's no place I'd rather be, for now it's already hitting ahead of us in the south of Hokkaido. Here the air's still calm where we are. Will it stay so as we steadily advance towards the village of Atsuta? It's a community having an annual festival friendly to families to mark the start of summer. Its 8,000 cherry blossom trees flourish in the local memorial park, where even gardeners had doubts the cherry trees could blossom in a climate of intense cold and deep snow of winter, till one of them thinks to wrap the tree trunks in protective layers to encourage the sap to rise. By the 1970s, their blossoms are a joy to behold. We are approaching on a gently rising road. Through gaps in lines of trees, we look down on an idyllic valley. Our camping ground is in these hills, about three kilometres from Atsuta's convenience store. I envy the few who live here to enjoy its charm forever. Flowers are everywhere. We camp near trees within cooey of two European bike riders and a rowdy group of young children whose kind parents welcome us with their tasty barbecue cooking. We rest our bicycles in a gazebo while spreading out the goodies of convenience store shopping. With so few people around, we hope not to come across Hokkaido's indigenous brown bears. They swim, climb, run as well as humans, and might be caring for cups. The authorities suggest that in a sudden encounter, it's best to back off slowly whilst facing the bear and ready to take up a defensive posture to protect head and neck if at close quarters. Next morning, the park ranger arrives. There seems to be a Japanese perception round camping grounds that if you arrive in darkness and leave before eight next day, then no fee is payable. We're preparing to leave. Haliko deftly steers all conversation away from camp fees. Amazingly, she succeeds. Some aspects of Japanese protocol will always elude me. Such tactics won't work in New Zealand. Once on the road, we feel an emerging excitement. We expect we should reach Sapporo by mid-afternoon, a city of less than two million, similar to Auckland's. We've an invitation from a magazine editor in Auckland to contact his parents in Sapporo. We do so, agreeing to rendezvous on the outskirts of Sapporo. It's in the car park of an elegant hotel. We arrive early. His parents expressly invited us, if early, to feel free to roam the palatial place. We have two hours in which to do so. For a nation thriving on compactness, the hotel is a huge, stunning extravagance. I order wine, poured from a small, decorative barrel. Its cost and the need of an excuse to say sitting in such luxury means draining it slowly in tiny sips, and occasionally to search out a toilet. Oh, a toilet! Traditional Japanese toilets are the dreaded squat style, but plush hotels like this feature a western-style toilet. Yet in so compact a cubicle that, as I sit down, my bare grubby knees are touching the opposite wall. I'm wondering if I'll be able to extract myself in the end. In the end... I squeeze into one corner of the cubicle so as to be able to open the door. 
The Western toilets, reinvented with heated seats and internal bidets, are increasingly seen in Japanese homes and hotels. At the appointed time, there's no mistaking that a car negotiating the hotel car park is looking for us. We greet the driver, our friend's father, Masakuni. We follow him on our bikes over the Barato River into the attractive street where our friend grew up. It pleases his mother to lead us to her son Takahide's old room up a steep staircase. Supposing we'll be weary from our travels, Masakuni takes charge of arrangements. We're to join the daily ritual at the nearby onsen. As is common, the sexes are segregated, so Haliko joins the other women. Once inside, the protocols of public bathing are demonstrated by Masakuni. Soon, in the all-together, we scrub down side by side. I smile at the ease with which people of different cultures, bare-bottomed, meet and socialize in the onsen. We take the hot baths and then, looking like lobsters, drop into a deep barrel of cold water. The sauna comes next. Masakuni tells me, ten minutes. As I quickly heat up, I find breathing is, is more difficult. I will the hands of the wall clock to spin a little faster. A welcome distraction from becoming cooked is having the television set on, but the program's disconcerting. We stare in awe as television reveals how the typhoons ravaging southern Hokkaido whence we're bound. Once out of the sauna, I spot a set of electronic scales. Already, I'm losing weight. Masakuni's family wishes us to experience the nightlife of Sapporo. Our hosts order a variety of dishes generously washed down with ice-cold beer and sake. It's a wonderful atmosphere. It leaves me to wonder how, from being pampered, I'll ever resume the role of long-distance cycle touring. As we regain the street, I ask Masakuni about that large, stately black car over the road. Is it the Yakuza? Probably, he replies. Just, just don't touch it. The Yakuza are the upmarket gangs, infamous for chopping fingers of any who cross them, sharing connections to the mafia in the United States and the triads of China. They all try to disguise criminal activity as legitimate business enterprise. Now we're all in the lift, rising to the top floor of a tall building. We're greeted by Madame Ohashi in a private bar where beautifully attired women adorn the furnishings. Here in Hokkaido, I'm thinking New Zealanders to be few and far between, yet in this bar the Japanese chat freely about Kiwis whose names they know, like Peter Jackson, Ed Hillary, Helen Clark, Andrew Mertens, and one or two others. Madame Mohashi is well-versed in the art of flattery, yet, despite her close attention, likely sees in me just another ageing tourist. I'd describe her as being regal rather than beautiful. For her efforts, she'll be well rewarded in Yen. It surely looks expensive here, a place for those with bottomless wallets. Sake goes down so well. I'm not feeling too self-conscious as we sample the tempting nibbles about dining out in freshly washed biking gear. We regain the street really relaxed, 
captured by the allure of lurid, neon-lit signs advertising Japan's high-end products. Rural roads inevitably retreat as cities swallow their surroundings. Yet Sapporo streets are wider than usual, laid out in grid fashion. It's one of the most attractive of cities. Of the original Ainu people, there are few vestiges. They were left undisturbed at the edge of the Japanese Empire until, in the late 1700s, Russia expands eastwards, settling fishermen and sealers along its Pacific seaboard. Japan awakens to a risk that Russia might claim Hokkaido as territory it's come to occupy through Japan's neglect to do so. To encourage Japanese to exploit the rich resources at sea, Fishing parties spend summers camping on Hokkaido Island, protecting Japan's territorial claim. Japanese surveyors chart the seas to the north of Hokkaido and map the whole island. Soon, permanent settlers put down roots, planting villages, asserting Japanese sovereignty through soldier-settlers dividing their time between military training and agricultural labor. By 1880, Sapporo takes shape. On land they clear of forest and timber, then sow in pasture to support daring along western lines. They find strains of rice to survive the cold climate. Barley, new to Japan, is the base for a beer distinctively appealing to a Japanese palate. Coal in the island's interior is mined to power industrial expansion in the south of Hokkaido. In all this process, the Ainu people are bystanders in their traditional way of life. Back on our bike seats, we aim our cycles at the nearby city of Otaru, a sister city to New Zealand's Dunedin. In such pleasant weather, commuter cyclists are out in force, sharing the wide footpaths in urban areas. Japanese urban sprawl blurs the overlap from town to metropolis, so cyclists become a part of that urban jungle. They recklessly weave through pedestrians, tingling cycle bells to avoid collisions. I follow the example of courteous Japanese motorists. Proceed with caution, whereas Harleko seems to be in her element, speeding ahead as if it's a game. For the first time, I think of Japan as a country where only the fittest would thrive. In Otaru, we spend our first night in a minchuku, or Japanese inn, run by a busy elderly woman. She tells us our bath time, and, with a wink, says we can bathe together. Otaru, a city about the same size as Hamilton, plays a past role as a financial and trade centre. Nearly a hundred years ago, a canal dredged from the seaport inland serves fish processing factories. Today, it welcomes the visitor to a romantic world there of artisan glasswork, music boxes, restaurants and cafes. Old warehouses along the canal are converted to magical decor lit by lanterns. In the strong light of the scenic northern island of Hokkaido, we revel in riding through hilly landscape below a peak nearly the height of Mount Tongariro to the city of Akodate. It's our first day cycling more than a hundred kilometers. From the lie of the land, I could imagine similar cycling past the volcanoes of the central North Island, even down to seeing a small tractor turning up rows of potatoes as middle-aged women, their backs bent to the task, gather the harvest. In a parking area, we stop at a toilet where all the human waste is recycled. The brown flush water stinks, 
I can't relieve myself while holding my breath, so give up. It seems everything that goes into it is merely liquefied and then returned to soil. If tourists, anticipating a culture of geisha girls and Japan's 21st century technology, chance on such rural arrangements, it surely will astonish them. The end to this energetic day is to stay in a city near Sugaru Strait, separating the islands of Hokkaido and Honshu. Here, in a plush new railway terminal, are public toilets to restore our dignity. Hakodate. I'm watching our bikes while Haruko's in the restroom. A small man with a merry face corners me. He says he's Kayoshi, who may have had a little to drink. It's been a sultry afternoon. I'm hot, weary and grumpy, blistered with sunburn. I'm not really in a mood to socialize. Kayoshi seems to think otherwise. He says something to me in Japanese. I don't understand, so I respond with English to satisfy his curiosity. I'm from New Zealand. If he can't understand that, it will mercifully end another unsatisfactory conversation. I'm itching to get a shower to be rid of the spent sunscreen that's making a mess on my arms. But no, Kayoshi's beaming grin widens. That's great, he says. Kayoshi, too, is a traveller. No kidding? He's been to New Zealand once, twice in Australia, America five times, to Britain too. Kayoshi definitely prefers touring English-speaking nations, particularly New Zealand. When Haruko returns, she finds Kayoshi and me in a pantomime of his journey. Unperturbed by sideways glances, Kayoshi taps his feet, indicating on the pavement the geographic location of places he's been, reciting their names. A tap here? That's Kaikura. Here's Christchurch, Auraki Mount Cook, Omarama, Queenstown, Arrowtown, Cromwell, Milford, Alexandra, Dunedin. How his memory must be photographic. I'm enthralled. His feet indicate the Otago Peninsula, with the waving of arms imitating how the albatross nest in their colony there. If I'd marked in chalk where his feet tapped, it'd make out a near-perfect map of the South Island of New Zealand. We smile and say our farewell to this extrovert character, reluctant to part. Doubtless the curious passers-by, who stopped to look, must wonder what it's all about, and, still perplexed, resume their own urgent journeys along the broad footpath in the city of Hakodate. As Haluko and I pedal the few blocks to our accommodation, I'm thinking how Hokkaido's humans for centuries relied on rich resources of fish, of timber, introduced one rice crop a year to sustain their families. Cultivating is so hard on Hokkaido's persistently fog-shrouded Pacific coast, but farmers knew to apply natural and artificial manure to coax crops to yield sufficient from small land holdings. The fruits of their labor are to be seen in these cities. We covered the length of Hokkaido, 777 kilometers, in 13 days. That's but one day ahead of our schedule as planned by my string-on-the-map calculations back home in Christchurch, when it all seemed so distant a dream. Now, in living that dream, we're discovering what distinguishes the folk of Hokkaido as hard-working, happy, and very hospitable. I know I will hear what 
Thanks for your company on the journeys of Roy Sinclair and Haruko as they make their way southwards from the tip of the north of Japan, bound for the southernmost islands. Tune in the same time next week on Free FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.